Meditations with Ryan Slomack. Today marks the sweet 16 of this show. This is episode 16 of Meditations with Ryan Slomack, a podcast all about making space for conversation to figure what we can learn from people. And I want to thank you so much for being here. It's been a blast these past 16 episodes. We have plenty more in stock. And today we're going to learn from somebody of interest. Today's interest is Bill Lasher. He is a Portland, Oregon-based journalist. He's the author of Eve of a Hundred Midnights and The Golden Fortress. He has a new book coming out on March 26th called A Danger Shared, which is uh, sort of a mixture between journalistic integrity, research, and photo essay, which sounds quite fascinating. In this conversation, we're going to talk about Bill's evolution as a writer, kind of discovering writing roots in his family, figuring out the best method to get your uh, your story out in 2024, and just kind of take a critical look at the research process. What does it mean to be a researcher when uh, you want to communicate something that is both imaginative and informative? So uh, I hope you find this to be a valuable piece of dialogue. Uh, and without further ado, here is Bill Lasher. Bill, uh, thank you for thank you for joining and uh, bringing your your inherent research background to my show, where I try to pride myself on extensive research. I feel like I have, uh, I don't know, like a a, a, a a playful competitiveness with you already, and we haven't even started. The <laughs> well, thanks for having me. And I, from what I've listened, I've actually that's one of the things I was listening to the one about Wizard of Oz, and and you mentioned that you had watched it that day, and. I, you know, uh, that seems like a smaller thing, but, um, it, it, you know, it just shows the professionalism that I think a, a good researcher should have. Well, I do my best and I, uh, you know, and sincerely, I'm just, I really admire the way in which you, um, I don't know, you, you pepper you pepper in details, you build, uh, visual landscapes with all your writing, but you also, uh, you don't compromise on the research and I'm excited to get into that mm-hmm. as we uh, as we talked but the first thing I want to start at uh, is that you know here I am in the Northeast here you are in the Northwest um, in central New York we've got you know beautiful overcast skies and whatever uh, but we're not as weird as you guys are so is, how's Portland doing is it staying weird is it staying awesome with your presence yeah it's pretty great you know it's it is being very Portlandy today with you know, it's been raining and overcast. I got back from a trip to Southern California to see my family for the holidays, and it was, you know, it was nice there, and it's gray here, and it's just right. The, you know, culture-wise, it's as weird as ever. It's not on fire, despite what people would want you to believe. I would like it to be on fire. It'd be kind of warm. Um, I like being warm, but no, it's not on fire. It never was. Um, you know, the challenges that we're facing here are challenges that any, you know, populated place is, is facing. Um, it, you know, has gone through its moments of being, you know, sort of the it girl of cities and, um, it's not quite there, but I think it's, um, kind of getting back to the sort of, I used to call when I moved here, the sort of, uh, potluck culture that it once was where everyone brings something to the table. Um, and so I'm liking it. I'm liking being, you know, I was gone for two weeks, so I'm also liking being back here. It feels like home. That's awesome. And I always I always enjoy uh, just reading your articles where you are yeah, kind of nice. exploring the the culture of Portland, because it's really, you know, uh, as a I don't know, as sort of like a litmus test of like cultural landscapes. I always feel like Portland is a really interesting one where, um, you know, like 
could this work in our country? Portland is like the case study. <laughs> it's like the place where it starts. Um, but I want to I want to start off uh, taking a step back because I you know while I was doing research on you, um, you know I'll, I'll be upfront that like Bill and I have known each other for a good number of years, and uh, I, I think I met you right when your first book had just been published, which was really exciting. Um, but as you know, I we've never actually had a conversation about like how you got into writing. Um, yeah. And as I was uh, as I was doing research on you, I didn't realize how. Um, important and impactful your parents were in the world of law and the legal system <laughs> yeah. um and that your your dad edward uh had a uh you know a, a, like sort of a, a column that was very very famous in the legal landscape uh called lasher at large uh for for a very long time and your mom um you know like had did all of these legal cases related to the death penalty and and, and all these things and i think was just inducted into like the the lawyer hall of fame in 2021 uh which is you know like pretty awesome and i'm just curious about like you know being growing up in an environment where like the written word is so important like how did that sort of like impact your your perspective on on, on writing as you were a kid well it's first of all it's kind of funny because i never re realized how much the written word was involved in their work when i was a kid it's probably by the time i was in high school i did but i didn't understand you know the difference of different kinds of lawyers and the fact that there are appellate attorneys and everything is writing, everything is writing briefs, and I'd hear them talking about briefs, I'd hear them, they used to use dictaphones and dictating their things into the, um, you know, retorter, which is essentially just like us, you know, saying what we want to say to Siri, except for talking to, you know, the secretary who was going to transcribe it. But, you know, I came to realize words meant a lot, and I do know that my father was always writing, you know, he had written a novel that he never published, and I, I kind of had that sense, I knew about that, I knew he was always reading I mean, the written word was all around me in the sense that there were books all over our house. You know, my parents were always reading for their sort of leisure time as well as their work. They're talking about reading, they're talking about their cases. Um, as I grew up and got a little older, um, you know, my father passed away when I was 11. And, um, you know, I learned more about the work that he did and, and you know, the reason obviously the reason that I call Lasher at large, my website Lasher at large and my sort of broader business Lasher at large is because uh, sort of as a tribute to him and it really is appropriate because it spans a lot of subjects and it can, can really go in a lot of directions with that wording you know and for them um, but as I got into high school you know my mom would have dinner parties or friends over and they talked about books they were reading and articles I remember she had a, a she was seeing a man for a while who had a good friend who was a magazine writer. Actually, I think she had two or three good magazine writer friends who would come over and talk about their careers. And it, you know, it just was always so engaging and interesting to hear them describe the work they did. And kind of along the same, you know, sort of over the same period, I was, you know, as I was going into my teens and things, I was experimenting with writing and I was finding that. Honestly, like I was good at math in, in elementary school and middle school, and I got, I just kind of like, I liked it, but I didn't like all the, the busy work that surrounded math from an academic standpoint. And the sort of, you know, I didn't recognize the need for the repetition and the practice, but I got sort of impatient with the things, you know, as math got more advanced and I'd have to show my work and describe why I was doing things. And I just didn't have the attention span, whereas writing felt like something I could ease into and flow into, and I had a little bit more flexibility with what I attempted. I, I still didn't like 
you know, the pedantry that goes with certain sentence structures and, you know, diagramming sentences and all that, which is felt very constricting. Um, I guess I'm just saying, I know at school I never did my homework, you know, like, you know, sort of, you know, did what I could. Um, but with writing, it's, it's quite cliched, but I could sort of just, like, go where I wanted to go. Yeah, where when you were at what you know, so you went to you ended up going to Oberlin and, and getting a degree in mm -hmm. history, and then and then focusing on your master's in journalism in two thousand nine from University of Southern California. But like, at what point did that that sort of meshing of like, and I, I want to use the term creative nonfiction like intentionally mm -hmm. and correctly, but like at what point did that understanding of um, journalistic integrity and research and then sort of like creative ways to tell the tale when did those start to kind of mesh in your brain or, or, mm. or become a part of the voice that you wanted to express you know i was in high school i remember this very vividly i was um getting my i had a new car and i had to take it to you know get checked out or something not a new car but a new to me car and i remember being as junior or senior in high school and sitting, actually there are two things, two stories. One was this one, and it was around the same time. Um, so this story, I was sitting in a, you know, the lobby, reading a magazine, and it was a travel story, and I was fascinated by the fact that this fascinating story, I don't even remember where the person had traveled, I don't remember what magazine it was, but I remember sitting there being like, I'm totally engaged in this story, and it clicked that like someone had been paid to travel somewhere, and describe what he saw and what he did and the experiences he had now it was a fantasy and if we you know if I don't think any of your listeners really need to be told how much of a fantasy it is to make money to be paid to travel uh, but I, I appreciate it not as oh these are the most glamorous hotels or this was this I appreciate it because this was a narrative this was a story about this person's travel um, and around that time I was you know starting to get a more nuanced view of life, you know, reading a little bit more critically, um, realizing, you know, that the world wasn't as black and white as it might be. And, and that allowed me to think about the importance of telling the stories well, but telling them uh, somewhat skeptically. <laughs> it's funny, I keep thinking of other things. You know, I, I um, I tend to do this. I think Lasher at Large works. It's you know I tend to digress wherever I can. Um, uh, the other story, there's I think there's sort of two other foundational moments. One was you know um, uh, I had a summer reading assignment for an honors history class in high school, and we had to you know read the newspaper every day and and, uh, and describe what, what had been happening and uh, you know journal about it. And so procrastinator that I was, I stacked up all the newspapers for the summer in my house, didn't read them, didn't journal, and got to like the Friday before school started and read the whole, you know, I think it was the LA Times, read the LA Times every day. I mean, every day is LA Times over a weekend. Described what happened. And that gave me this perspective on the sort of developments as a story, you know, that these people who had been reporting were given these installments, almost like a, a serial novel or something, of major situations happening in the world. At the time, um, yeah, I believe something was happening with the, um, the, now it's the Democratic Republic of Congo, but it was 
Zaire or it might have been transitioning at the time and I believe I don't that the president had been I, you know I'm gonna get it wrong if I try to describe it here but I think I believe he had been assassinated and the Civil War was breaking out there and I'm watching these developments take place over the course of a summer and it was just again fascinating to me that someone was going there and telling us the story from this far-off place and in a compelling and vivid way and I mean one would have had to have been doing what I did or really paying attention every day to this story. Similarly, I think um, the war in the, in the former Yugoslavia was just nearing its um, you know its end. It was, but it was still hot, and it was. I, I don't think the Dayton Peace Accords had happened at that point. So I was also reading about that conflict, and it was the first time I really realized sort of the consequences of of a you know foreign conflict and uh, and. Uh, international strife and that you know their lives at stake and people not just in terms of physical sense but in terms of like you know families stability and livelihood and stuff and it added this nuance to stuff that I had only heard about from this very dramatic you know like watching your movies in the 80s and 90s of you know American soldiers doing heroic things and whatever uh, and realizing there's a lot more going on in the world and I, something about that clicked for me that like you could have a career sort of bringing history to life. And then the third thing is, I guess it seems like really trivial, but it may have, I, I've thought about this increasingly recently as I have had a kid and as he's grown up, it was sort of like this amazing thing that my parents did that was, seems like, like such an offhand thing. But there used to be this magazine called Zillions that Consumer Reports put out, and it was essentially Consumer Reports for Kids, and it taught kids about marketing and the ways that companies might try to persuade you to buy a product, but really they were doing a lot of, you know, smoke and mirrors for, um, uh, you know, making things look exciting or making food look really yummy or all these various other aspects of uh sort of commercial world in the, you know, I was growing up in the 80s and early 90s, and um, so my parents got me a, a subscription to that, and I loved reading it. I was fascinated, because for me it was like I was in on the secret, but that instilled in me this, this sort of ethos, I think, for much of my life to be like, you know, the sort of just check things out a little deeper, check things out a little more before below the surface. I have a real tendency to be gullible. And so having that check on like, well, are things as they present themselves to me and why or why are not are they like was essential. So that sort of fused into my writing. I was like, you know, you can write and tell these stories, but you gotta check them out. Um, I've never consciously thought about one leading to the other. But I do know that those are all strong threads in my life. That's amazing. I feel like that last one in particular, like, I think it's just, it's so important that, like, you are exposed to the deconstruction of fabricated items early. You know, I mean, I think I, the amount of people that I know that, uh, you know, you sit there and you look at, like, the rollout of, like, We'll say a famous musician. I'm sure people know who I'm talking about, or you know, or the way in which like spoilers for movies are slowly put out there, or whatever. And like, it, we're in a culture now where it's like, isn't it cool that like somebody got in there and got all this information? And you're like, 
isn't it cool that like a multi-million dollar marketing firm figured out how to make you think that this happened yeah. by accident and um that's just so i mean i coming from two lawyers why am i not mm. surprised but like that's that's really cool to have like this like kind of like kids version of like behind the scenes marketing at such a young age yeah i remember my um excuse me excuse me my brother well i have my, my parents had uh, both had kids before they were married and so i'm an only child between the two of them but they all had uh, kids and my dad's uh, children were adults when i was born and one of them was a photographer and i remember telling him so excitedly because i'd learned from this magazine that uh you know how they made like a cereal look amazing and crunchy because it was in like glue and he was he's like yeah you know it just starts telling me about the studio you know sort of studio tricks of photography that people could do and it was like I think that it was sort of almost like they were waiting for me to find this stuff out but you know also having a kid now I see it again like I see my kid get excited about marketing you know it's like how do I like it's this weird thing where like how do I how do I like guide him like away from like getting caught on these this sort of machine of you know sort of constructed realities but then maintain his sort of sense of wonder and like I'm not the kind of person who like wants to be skeptical of everything and wants to be a downer about everything in a wet blanket like there's some things I'm like yeah it's fine just like have some wonder and it's like I'm not super anti-mass culture I mean I like my favorite band is U2 and they're like this massively commercial band you know um, you know, I like Star Wars. Um, you know, it's totally Disney-fied, but like, literally now, and yet, like, I also know that they're like multi-million-dollar. Both of those enterprises alone are multi-million-dollar enterprises, and we're talking in one case four people, and in another case, you know, something that was. You know, it was once just a story. For, I mean, it's still meant to be a blockbuster. Um, the world surrounds that, but I don't like shoot it down. It's just, I, yeah, I think having lawyers as parents was part of that, being skeptical, sort of thinking for myself. Um, writing was always definitely looking back on their work, you know, as I got older, realizing how much writing was a big part of their lives became important to me. I knew. My dad liked reading the newspaper. I knew he had this column. I didn't know what a column was still. I was in my teens. You know, I've since learned how important it was. And I've since read his old columns, and they're really interesting. I avoided it all for a long time because I thought legal writing was so boring. You know, it, it felt so boring when they were always talking about, you know, the minute intricacies of a particular case or something. But then his columns are about the law, but they're also just about people who are lawyers or judges or other events as they intersected with cases in the legal world. Um, so now that I've read it in retrospect, it's, you know, um, it's been a thing. But, you know, other, there's, like, writers all over. My older brother brother did a underground newspaper when he was in high school. So I did an underground newspaper when I was in high school. Uh, it was far less underground and, like, probably, like, overly, I'm underground, you know? It did no one was trying to shut me down. Um, no one was trying to fight you for the Xerox machine. It was like, yeah. Oh, and it was Xerox for sure. And it was, but it was Xerox using like Microsoft Publisher. It wasn't Xerox with like everything like pasted together. You know, it wasn't um, like a zine. You know. Well, I want to talk about this idea of wonder a little bit because I think it's interesting that like um, 
I don't know. I, the term the term journalism in 2024 uh, carries with it a lot of weight, right? I mean, we're at, we're at a point, same with, I mean, the term education, like all these different things that we had always felt like were just um, foundational. And now it's, well, we need to question these people, blah, blah, blah. Not necessarily who the publishers are. We need to cut, we need to, you know, question the, the journalists on an, an individual <laughs> basis. But, and, and I'm not trying to get overly political, but the thing that I want to mm-hmm. put out there is that like, you know, I've interviewed journalists before and I've interviewed writers before and there's a difference in your type of journalism um, in the sense that like when you're writing, you're, I really just, I keep thinking about like the idea that like all of your writing is about like completely building an environment for a reader and building mm-hmm. a time frame for a reader and like setting the stage, like as opposed to here are the facts, ma'am, and then moving forward. <laughs> um, and you're really good about just making sure that like all of your pieces have uh, that wonder component in two ways. One is that, um, you know, like you're an autonomous freelance being, you can choose what you write about, right? And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you choose stories about, um, you know, like rescue dogs uh, heading to different natural disasters. Like that's a really interesting narrative to tell as opposed to, you know, like what's that, that, that story is conveying to us about like the, the entire infrastructure that occurs to you know to come and save people when these natural disasters happen you're telling it from the point of the point of view of a dog that was almost you know destined for uh, to die in a kill shelter uh, and i'm curious about like how you two things one how you maintain um that just joyous part of yourself when you're writing and being like you know what my end goal is not is not to just present facts my end goal is to um to present uh the entire world and then number two like um how you've managed to sustain a career doing that to to you know uh to find those sort of like wondrous narratives and uh and and put them out there well there's it's a much more complicated answer i appreciate this this generous uh, portrayal of what is sometimes actually just me. Um, these are the stories I get published, you know? Um, uh, part of what happens is I have a lot of story ideas that don't get sold, you know, and I'm really bad at pitching. Um, I, I, at least I feel like I am, and I take a long time, I over-perfect. I, I mean, maybe part of it is because of the same thing. I'm trying to overthink it, but... Um, I don't know if I'd say I sustain a career. Sustain is, you know, I've had a lot of people in my corner for the last uh, ever, um, and that's helped. I mean, I don't know if I was not as well backstopped if this would happen this way. Yeah, I've had struggling moments too. Um, but then there are parts of this that, like, I can't avoid in terms of the actual writing. Like, it is how I write. It's also how I talk if I have a comment, you know, too you know, my, my wife in particular's great frustration and other people, sometimes they just want me to get to the point and stop setting the scene of like what it is I'm trying to say. Um, I do feel strongly that I, I, I had this conversation with another writer friend probably 10 or 12 years ago in this briefly held writer's group actually while I was working on the proposal for my first book and so kind of getting it sort of polished to even get an agent or a publisher. Um, where I guess she had had a class where they talked about, you know, looking at the movies that were playing on a particular day to tell a story and or something like looking at a newspaper and somehow that stuck with me and I become sort of like, I get sort of over obsessed with like getting in the world of the story I'm telling. Um, 
I know my second book I start with like I think the first line starts with like what the weather was like in a particular street in north in this town in northern california so yes i looked up the weather report as close as i could from that place you know that day and looked at the street maps as and like what buildings were there at that point so i could see it say what people might have been looking at and what would have been around i mean i think you have to or else you're just making stuff up you know you're um i I think it's like a way of doing honor to the people who are experiencing something in particular my first book you know these were two journalists that i was writing about um who like really wanted to store, tell the story about what was happening. There were journalists working in Asia covering the war even before the US got involved and people weren't paying attention. And you know, my main subject complained that this fanciful, overdramatic, like sort of like um, uh, not just exotifying, but like this sort of monstrous writing about this sort of quote-unquote like, like barbarism in Asia was was showing up in American papers when he was there and he saw like way more nuanced and complex views of the situation where he had been as an exchange student. Um, that like my writing accurately and clearly like meant that I was telling their story sort of more fully. Um, but I do have a wonder. I like want to know what these places. I can't go to all these places, so if I can find out what they feel like and experience it, like I can transport there. And ultimately, I think that's more readable for people. I think that's more interesting to people to, like, be in a place, and you know, stick around versus see a story of some, you know, landslide that's people in lost in and dogs that have you know, searched through rubble to, to help them, you know, it's just one more tragedy, but then, you know, you you have a story that's, I know dogs, I like, oh wow, dogs are doing this amazing thing to help these people, I'm going to keep reading about it. Um, I, I think sometimes to our detriment we look too much, though, for those, like, hooks. I think what you mentioned about the infrastructure behind how a search dog foundation is set up and all that matters, too. And writing about um, sort of why things really are the way they are is, is really crucial and I'd like also love to do more of that work. I actually I can't talk about it too much yet but I'm just finishing up a piece that I've been working on for longer than I expected. Um, uh, my first sort of more harder piece that uh, you know more, more sort of straight reporting about the way money's spent and, and what people are doing with the money uh, sort of for an ostensibly positive purpose and really, you know, with a lot of positive impact, but with a lot of questions about um, why they're doing that left up in the air. And and, and it involves storytelling and it involves journalism and and who's funding journalism and and why. And there's not a lot of skepticism in where that money's coming from. So I, I think it's also important to tell that kind of story of like the, like, it's really like easy to be like, everything's this pretty picture and we need more like positive material i i think that's true i think we need more happiness i've noticed you emphasize play and joy a lot on this podcast a lot and every time i hear that i get really excited because like for me i think you said in your first podcast when you you were talking about i think you said almost offhand like joy is like the purpose of life you know like we exist to i mean and i kind of agree it's like why are we here if not if we're just moving through life um so um, if my role stoking joy can be 
transporting people, but also helping them sort of more fully understand the world in which they're transporting them, then I've done something. Um, but I'm going on and on and on. I'm no, sorry. It's all good. Uh, I, I think that, yeah. you know, I, I just I want to interject with just a few things. I think one is that uh, so you reference your first your first book, which is called Eve mm-hmm. of a Hundred Midnights, came out in 2016. Right. Uh, and it follows Mel and Annalie Jacoby um, as they are uh, basically like trying to make sure that uh, they're they're safe from the Japanese. They have relationships with China um, mm-hmm. and they're they're constantly in danger. Uh, and it's a just a really cool, uh, really cool book. And I. I'll leave it there for the the pitch, but mm. I it's we're going to talk about something later that comes back to mm. that. So I just wanted to make sure that listeners were aware of that. One of the things I'm I'm really curious about though, uh, Bill, is like, um, you know, you you made the comment about the fact that like, um, you know, like as a journalist, like you feel compelled to go and figure out what is the weather of the of the mm-hmm. day on the street what are the buildings that are happening and not all journalists operate like that um and i'm not belittling others who, mm-hmm. who who don't write like this i think one of the beauties of journalism as opposed to just like reading bullet points of facts is the fact that like the different voices all carry their strengths and weaknesses and it's important that in journalism like part of the reason that like reading the paper on a sunday is a valid activity is that you're getting 50 different narrative voices in your head and you're figuring out which ones resonate with you and, and how those you know stories are, are going to sit with you um but not every journalist is gonna is gonna you know figure out like what was on the what was the special on the menu at the you know the the restaurant that was located across the street from uh the building you're talking about i'm curious about your your research procedures like how do you because you you deal with a mammoth amount of information i mean Mm -hmm. like it's as i read your work and i'm i'm seeing just the the sheer number of sources that you're coming from my brain can barely like comprehend that as a reader and i'm just curious about like as a creator like how do you regulate your research how do you organize your Mm -hmm. research how do you say enough is enough how do you say i need more how do you do all that? Uh, I wish I had the answer. I, you're absolutely. It's it's funny you say you can barely. You know, as a reader, you can barely process that or regulate. You know, that's probably a problem. And, you I, know, let me clarify my statement. When I say uh, I can't, my problem is that I'm constantly deconstructing things. And as I'm reading your, you know, paragraph after paragraph, yeah. I'm like, how on earth is Bill figuring out where these sources are located uh, and how he's getting that? No, no. As a reader, the story is clear. But as a deconstructor, I'm like, my brain is just baffled by the mechanics of your head. But that's, I mean, that's the thing is I'm constantly doing that. That is what's happening too in the story is like, it's really hard. You ask me, how do I know it's enough? And, and I don't. And then I'm like, usually how I know it's enough is that I've missed my deadline five times over, you know, and that's, I mean, it's been complicated. It's been so strange to figure out this process again, like after, so uh, uh, my so far only, and I think probably only kid was born uh, a couple months before the pandemic. Well, before lockdown started, not, not you know, COVID was here, but like um, he, you know, he was born and at the beginning of twenty twenty, and things were crazy from that. And right around, like literally, I was in the hospital when I got the offer. I, mean, I wasn't. I was, my wife was in the hospital. I was with her in the hospital when um, you know my agent came back with publishers' offers for this book, and, and then I and I you know agreed to a deal and for my second book though. Uh, but my point being, 
Um, I thought I was going to do it really fast. I had this whole plan, but then I had a kid and lockdown started. So all the stuff I was going to do, my process would have been stuff I learned from the first book, identifying sources of you know, maybe some archives that had material that was relevant, connected to either the subject I was writing about or the people uh, trying to get there, maybe writing some grants to get to these places. You know, that all went out the window. I still don't know if it went out the window because I was a new parent or because there were lockdowns or both. And life was different. Um, and now that I have a toddler, it's even more different. But I've, I mean, it sort of forces me to narrow my time down. But I, you know, I had to be candid and like be okay with myself saying I'm not going to do this in time and I'm going to ask for more time. But I also need to know when to pull a trigger. And I mean, that is my greatest flaw. You, you know, it, it is like, is realizing that you're never going to get all of, you know, well, my greatest flaw is not realizing you're never going to get everything. My greatest flaw is not deciding, you know. There's a different version of this flaw, which is like decision paralysis, you know. It's not just, um, you know, it's not just are you getting more stuff, but it's also deciding you can tell a good story. You have the confidence to tell a good story. You have got some good material. You can be transparent about what's omitted. You can say, you know, this is the story as I know it, or this is the amount of information about this subject that's available. I think I think good citation is good. I've, I was a little, like, I'm always like, uh, you know, I never, uh, my, my, my master's degree was a one-year program in a professional setting, you know? I never did the sort of advanced academia of like properly citing sources with, you know, whatever, you know, uh, whatever, you know, MLA format or whichever citational format. You know, I'll talk to real historians who probably would be aghast at the way I do my research, you know, the way I track it. What I do is just, I have the idea, I'm like, I sort of go back to sort of journalism. You know, I always sort of approach a, a big story, a book or anything. You know, who was there that I know about? What might they know? Where would they have been? And then I branch out, like, what material, like, you know, if there's an individual that I'm talking about, where did they go to school if they went to, you know, higher education? Then they might have some alumni situation. You might meet someone who's still around. You might have a child of them who might have their papers in a closet, you know. They might have donated their materials to their alma mater or to the place where they worked or that place that studies what they did. Um, and and so I just sort of start to set that stuff out. And for the first book, it literally was just like writing names down and looking things up and kind of like, kind of like following rabbit holes, sort of like my brain going through like a mental like hyperlink, you know, of, well, these things are here. I've since started to, because of all this chaos I mentioned earlier, I've I've started to sort of categorize my information a little bit more. I've got a few ways I keep it in my, um, you know, on my computer. I keep all my research mostly on my computer, unless it's hard, but even hard copy stuff I scan and, um, you know, OCR as much as possible. I'm really taking advantage of things like that. Um, Just to I, interject, o OCR, if I oh understand. Yeah. You know, being able to, to photograph a document 
and being able to to have the uh, computer instantly recognize the text from the document. Uh, just important for people to recognize that as a tool that we now have at our disposal. Uh, yeah. Whereas it used to be, you you know, you'd scan a document, and you'd still have to go through and you know read it and highlight the things that you want. Now you can actually uh, take a photograph of an image, uh, get that, get all that text, and then have different ways to document it. Uh, well, to be clear, that, you probably still have to check what it does because. I have so many OCRs that like I have a pretty powerful like way of working with it. I mean, I use this program called this is again way in the weeds, but I use this program called Devon Think that someone recommended to me a couple of years ago that's just kinda like good at sort of you can do a lot with it and you can kind of adjust how it works for you. But um, the point being it also has pretty good search within the program of things you but if something's OCR weird or it's especially if it's you know an unrecognizable font or handwriting or something like that, it may not pick up the word you're searching for. So so part of the process involves checking what you're looking at and also I'm a big believer in sort of checking like around the information whether it's in an electronic format or a digital format like I first started really learning this skill when I was an undergrad I remember doing a you know a final paper in a class and really doing like hardcore like library research and realizing like I've looked up a book I'm going to pick it up from the shelf and then I look at everything else on the shelf nearby and I'll be like oh that book is actually relevant I didn't even think to look for it and that's sort of how I approach all of my other researches. I think of the sort of adjacent things that might be there, but I I always get like more and where to look down. Again, to my detriment, it means like a gazillion tabs open on my computer, or it means looking through stuff that isn't gonna be useful, really boring stuff sometimes, but sometimes really compelling stuff. Like I also really believe in like reading a newspaper. It gets back to the looking up the weather or something like that. And like you're looking at the article, don't just save the article. Save the whole page. What else was on the next page over? You know, because that's going to give you the context of the world around it. It's fun anyway. That's what's great about a newspaper is like you see the thing you want to read, but there's something that just catches your eye because it's a funny headline. You know, a great example because we're both into pinball is for the second book, I was, you know, writing about something happening in the mid-30s. I look up a newspaper that's sort of in the, the sort of epicenter of the story and the action in the book, and the next column over from the story I'm writing about is something saying, like, pin and ball games, it's like pin dash ball because they haven't quite formalized the title, you know, banned, because this is a period in which, you know, there's anti-gambling ordinances all over the place. And the county in which I was I was I was covering was considering a pinball ban, and I'm like, whoa, this is cool. This is a subject I'm interested in too. So, you know, my pr approach is to be open to all that kind of tangential material because it might be useful. Now, that's also though the approach that gets you to be a hoarder. It's always that approach of like I'm sort of like an information hoarder in a way. Um, and you know, I know that. You know, I ended up writing my first book about Mel Jacoby partially because. His mother kept all his stuff about him, and then my grandmother kept all of that material. And when 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 um, Mel's mother died, my grandmother inherited and kept it, and you know, in, with a bunch of other family material. And you know, when she realized I was a journalist and interested in, you know, she, she in journalism, she started telling me about this. You know, I I um, it's funny because we talked earlier about um, uh, my parents my father and my mother being interested in writing, and my father was interested in being a journalist before he became a lawyer. Um, and so I always sort of thought that that was what inspired me, but it was my grandmother who 
uh, told me about this journalist and her family and told me this like really amazing story about all these adventures he had, kept the material, and but maintained it in these weird, like the reason I brought her up earlier about hoarding is she just like would keep this stuff in you know, a shoebox, you know, a picture, of, an envelope of pictures would say photos or scenery, and there'd be a separate envelope of photos that would say nice scenery, but sometimes the pictures inside would be like boats or something, you know. Um, but I, I, the other thing about like my heritage as a writer that comes up when I think about that is like, I've literally realized in like the last two months looking through some of her old materials that she wanted to be a journalist when she was in high school. She had been the editor of her student paper in high school and she'd applied to work and maybe have an internship at the Los Angeles Times and she never talked about that. She never told me about that when she was alive. I didn't realize that. And there's all this columns she wrote, scrapbooks of it, letters she wrote to her grandmother about it. Um, she became a lawyer too, actually. She didn't practice as long as her husband did. Um, um, she, but she was, she went to law school in the 40s, in the same class as Sandra Day O'Connor, you know, like, um, was interested in the law, but had started with this journalism interest. So, like, it's sort of all over the place. And, um, um, I mean, again, I've, I've run down this, like, side <laughs> road, but the side road being there's all this stuff out there, you know. It's a- well, and I think it's it's always fascinating just to like I don't care what art form you're looking into like the the art that's successful is the stuff where there's uh, you're seeing one percent of what the background work is yeah. you know um, and I think that like in the documentary world uh, you know they talk about shooting ratios and the idea that like uh, a, a, a successful documentary it doesn't mean that you're just shooting willy nilly, but like if a successful documentary mm. typically has a hundred hundred to one shooting ratio, which means that for every hundred hours of legitimate good content that you filmed, you you when you edit it down, you probably have about one hour of really solid material, which is why most documentary films, at least up until uh, the sort of like Netflix, uh, you know, series component or um, Ken Burns just taking it, you know, to crazy, crazy lengths. That's why most like theatrical run documentaries end up being about 80 minutes is because that ends yeah. up being like, you know, an, an hour and a half, an hour and, or sorry, sorry, 120, 130 hours worth of footage that's then edited down to something like that. And it's really interesting to me just to hear that the fact that those same themes come up in the way in which you're doing your research for a book, you know, you're reading thousands of books worth of material and finding all these documents that you're, you know, you're, you're then synthesizing down to a, you know, a 300 page book or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know where this term comes from, but I think it's used a lot and it, it's been in my head, especially so working hard, you know, people talk about gathering string and like, um, that's sort of what I've, you know, I'm always doing is I'm gathering string for projects, even when I'm not you know, working on something, I'm, I think I'm, I tend to be gathering strength in case, like, yes, in case it'll be useful, but also so I can more fully describe it. Again, it's just like, I guess it's just like world building and compelling, you know, building, but it's world building with the real world, which is an odd thing to say. It's, it's maybe a world, you know, the other thing I, the metaphor, there's always this vision in my head. I've, I've thought about it a lot while I work on projects in the last year or two. And definitely when I was finishing my last book, um, and then some smaller stuff. I've never built a ship in the bottle, but I understand that when people build ships in a ship in a bottle, they kind of build it flat inside the bottle, and like the last thing is they like, I don't know, they like pull a string or do something that 
makes it come up and look like a ship. You know, they've arranged everything in a certain place, and I always feel like I'm in that space of like I've got all the stuff and stuff in there, and uh, I'm not good about knowing. Maybe it's knowing when the bottle's full, and knowing like again when to when to like inflate doesn't seem like the right word, but I keep thinking of the word inflate. You know, um, and uh, I. Yeah, I just think that's what, you know, I, you may have seen this in your research, but I, I went, um, after college, I went to the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. Another great Portland. I mean, people give Portland, Oregon all this credit, but wow, Portland, Maine is amazing. I, I miss it. I miss it all the time. Uh, anyway, Salt was this great school. At the, at the time, it was really focused on written documentary, you know, magazine, this long-form narrative work and photo, you know, photo essays, and then they were just starting maybe a year or two into their radio program, which is, became their main program, I think, and now it's, it's now part of the main college of art. But um, anyway, I went in 2002, and a lot of that was also training the sort of um, shooting ratio concept that you're talking about. A lot of that was about gathering a lot of interviews, talking to a lot of people. Um, there was an entire like pre-project lesson on going and gathering like a scene, you know, at a place, you know, very, very place-based, you know, they're all about documenting life in Maine and, uh, and the way it's sort of, you know, evolved over the years. But that really stuck with me. I mean, the first project I wrote was about a, I mean, my, I should say my, my major project, my central project was about a a bar that was on the border that served as a gathering place for the community and you know, sort of how it might have been evolving sort of this was a year after September 11th and so it was a border town and um, um, but I was really just writing about community and place and how people and place intersect um, and, and, and writing about place has always been important to me um, and writing about people in place um, and so I feel like if I'm doing that I have to describe the place well, and the place isn't just a physical ge geographical place, but it's also a um, chronological setting. It's a social setting. It's a uh, uh, you know emotional and political setting. You know, you know all this stuff informs where we are, and um, I've um, it took me a long time to realize that that's been a through line in my career, but. Um, you know, I figure if it is a through line, I better describe place really well, whatever I define the place as. But I think it helped to have been there and to learn to get more than you need and, you know, take it out. As they say, you know, kill your babies. But, um, kill, kill your darlings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just, my, I love that quote. I use it all the time. Nobody knows where it came from. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> associated with Ernest Hemingway. Most people are pretty sure it's not Hemingway. Yeah, um, and I just, I, I get a kick out of, uh, you know, normally you could kind of decode that and figure it out. No one to this day still knows where uh, where that term came from. Um, I mean, I've, I, I have somehow translated it to kill your babies, which I, it's like, I even have folders on my computer of like, killed babies, which are like lines I cut from things or passages I cut. I love it. For people who are listening to this who are like, why are you supporting the, the death of youth? <laughs> I want to make sure I, I, I clarify this term, which is yeah. the idea that if you are working on a piece of art, you're working on a project, whatever it may be, uh, the term kill your darlings is something that, that's taught in a lot of creative spaces and it's or kill your babies if your name is Bill Lasher. Uh, and the uh, the idea is that while you're working, you may develop 
these these components for a piece that you love. You know they are perfect. They are these amazing works, but in the context of the greater piece, it does not function. And if you are to put one of these darlings in that piece, it will actually erode the the contents of uh, of a piece. Like one of the, the as a film nerd, one of the things that I always think of is like. You know, uh, when DVDs were big, or you watch, you you find missing scenes on YouTube of of movies that you really like. They filmed this component. Why didn't they put it in there? Uh, everybody's like, "Oh, that would have been great. Why didn't you put it in there?" Da da da. Uh, that's a darling that was killed by a director or an executive or a producer. Um, that was just, you know, that was decided that you know what, this actually derails a main theme. This uh, takes us away from. Uh, a mark, you know, we only have 70 minutes that we can ke- keep a toddler entertained. And if we add this extra five minute mm-hmm. sequence in, it's going to, it's going to remove it. So when we're using uh, the term kill your darlings or kill your babies willy nilly, there is actually uh, an academic component to that. FYI. <laughs> yeah. And it's a necessity with this much research. It's like, you're going to, aside from the writing, you're going to have, you're never going to be able to throw in that little cool piece of information you learned, but it doesn't fit, you know. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the th- that's actually one of the things I wanted to kind of bring up next is the fact that like now we have so many other ways. Just it, it doesn't not not even just in journalism, but just in creativity mm-hmm. to be able to get our work out there to add those little darlings. And and one of the things that you've done is you created the scenic root substack. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, as you were talking about your uh, the theme of you know the importance of being there and being in a place and and place being the sort of like foundation of a story. I just read a story that you wrote yesterday uh, mm. about. Um, Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild, oh, yeah. and and the idea that Hyrule, this location that's been around since the 1980s, um, is a place that people choose to live in comfortably, uh, either independently or collaboratively, um, as as a location that they choose to visit. And I thought it was a really interesting spin on your theme of of location, where now we're looking at a place where it's not you creating uh, a location based off of um you know like different archives that you found that describe what this place may have looked like it's you jumping into a fabricated location and describing the way in which that location makes you feel um Mm. and we could we could talk about zelda all day but i'm what i'm curious about is like your turn your your choice to develop content um that is not instantly paid out or is not instantly mm-hmm. um you know like uh, associated with a certain periodical like what what made you decide to go the substack route i mean a lot of people are, are doing it and i'm curious like what benefit that that adds to you well that's a funny example of something that where i did have to just pull the trigger i you know i learned about substack even in like 2019 and i remember thinking oh, this might be an opportunity to do some stuff that i want but then like they kind of tried to nurture some writing early in the pandemic and I started some ideas and I think I set up my account then but it was like I never then I got very uncomfortable with it I mean there's a new controversy now about what it platforms but even back then it was just the sort of you know there's always that question of who's going to make money off of work but ultimately I was like you know I'm never going to write if I don't write I honestly I haven't written that subsect now I'm months away from what was supposed to be I'm glad I called it the scenic route because it could take as long as I want. But, um, um, you know, it, I, I just had that realization that, like, I need another place to write. And I I can't wait for people to give me a space to write. And at the same time, like, the only way, the only way that you get writing out there is if you write. 
the only way you get seen is if you have a platform. I, one thing I appreciate about not just Substack, but the sort of era of newsletters that has sort of emerged and you know, who knows if it's going to continue, um, is it feels like the blogging era that maybe I didn't take enough advantage of, but that is when I set up my website. Um, you know, you know, it's there's been these moments where it's sort of okay to just experiment, and I think right now I'm finally in this position where, like, I feel very comfortable. It's something about getting older. It's something about being in my I don't know if it's something about being in my forties or if it's something about maybe being comfortable because I have a kid, so I'm less interested in like establishing my own like something and you know, going out there, but like. It's like I'm very comfortable in my own skin right now, and that allows me to write um, where I want to. Not necessarily financially, but it allows me to be like tr a little bit more trusting in my own process and being like, you know, that thing about Zelda, I, I had been thinking about how much I kept thinking about. It's so quiet here. That's sort of what prompted that thing. And that piece turned way different from what was like forming in my head. That's a great example also. Or, I adjusted it as I wrote and I cut things out that never made it in there. But it also included pieces of things that I had cut out, you know, elsewhere and just had floating around. Um, you know, snippets from other things that kind of fused in there. And I think having your own self-directed platform, you know, that's a little less wedded to, like, format than, like, a lot of the social media platforms are in terms of, like, you know, Instagram, you have to have these... You know, you to get seen, you gotta have these dimensions be a certain way, and you know, you know it's gonna change, and you know, now reels are being elevated, or or stories, or whatever, you know, you know everyone can write books on the best way to be seen on on a, whichever social media. At least in something like a Substack or a blog, you can kind of just shape it how you like. Um, you just have to decide whether you care, excuse me, how many people are gonna read it and if this is your route to being financially successful. I guess I just feel um, it's sort of more important to be like getting stuff out there that you believe in than just um, waiting to find the right fit for everything. Um, I don't know. I I hesitate to call myself an artist. I don't think I write enough to say that like I'm uh, I'm doing it. It's funny. I, I I don't write. I get excited when I write now because um, I end up doing a lot of these little things that involve writing that like wear me out. Um, wow, I am really trailing off here, and I'm I'm losing my train of thought, but. Um, what was your question? <laughs> no, it's all right. So we're talking about Substack and uh, about choose. I think you did a great job of just talking about the the idea that um, as somebody who has a skill set and as somebody who has an impulse to utilize that skill set, Substack was a way for you to create a uh, you know uh, create a venue to put that information out there. The one idea that I just want to see if we can finish this point that you just talked yeah. about is the fact that um, you get excited to write now and the things that wear you out. Uh, from the writing process seem to be sort of removed when you're writing for either this platform well, or these things? Well, for example, I've been, I, I mentioned before I was finishing this like piece of journalism for someone 
So once I'm done, like I was excited to do the writing aspect of that, but I, I overwrote it. I, mean, I wrote it a little too long and it got more complicated than it needed to be, but I also felt like it, um, you know, it couldn't be left simpler. It would have just, it would have been empty. And, um, uh, and it's an important subject, but I like the part where I was writing, but then I also had to do a lot of writing of like why it mattered and I have to do like emails and things like that. All the other writing that happens in life that like the, like just writing for writing's sake is like, well, is like less attractive. I end up just burnt out. Um, and it's sort of like reading. I mentioned like, you know, I was saying this to someone the other day, I don't read very much anymore because like for my own pleasure, because I am reading like little documents all the time, little things, sources, research, you know, a paper about something, a newspaper article that like when I'm done with the day, it's like I don't want words in front of me. Um, and writing's somewhat similar, but now writing feels because I, I have some, some other ongoing projects, I can kind of ease into the writing with a little bit more comfort. Um, I mean, we're talking after the new year and I'm starting the new year sort of on a pretty like, not blank slate, but like I don't have a lot of stuff hanging over me which means I'm like really excited to just like dig into some ideas that have been like hanging out there. And I'll probably spend a couple hours, you know, later today doing some of this and I'll spend some, um, uh, you know, tomorrow just like working on ideas. And that's just like, it's really refreshing and having a place like Substack where that stuff can end up is, is nice because maybe other people will read it and it'll spark some conversation. And usually when I write one of those, I come up with all these ideas at the end that like, uh, oh, this is cool to talk about. This is a fun thing to share. And that brings in the research. The whole point of that subsect originally was like, I, all that tangential stuff I find on the next column over, it's like, this is cool. And I can't just like, I'm not in an office where I can just like lean over and say, hey, did you know about this? And if I were, the other people would be like, no, but I got my other work. So like, people can see it if they want to see it. And if they don't want to see it, so be it. They don't have to read it. Um, and I'm, you know, fortunate to be in a somewhat, I have like at least one really stable client right now, so I could at least know that like most of my, I don't have to be as like much of a hustler about like getting money in, although I of course need more and, you know, but, um, you know, like any artist, like when you know you've got sort of some, something sustainable happening, you can, you can relax a little bit into your work. You know, this idea of the starving artist is a little, um, a little over, overproduced. Because um, when you're starving, you better take that boring, you know, design job or the, you know, I've done copy editing jobs that were mindless. I've done proofreading jobs where they were just the worst. Where you're just like reading, making sure that like documents that are almost identical, you know, have the commas in the right place, you know for hours and they're mostly, and they're not narratives, so you're just, you know, finding that material. So I think it's important. That said, like, I think when you're also struggling, you should try to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And part of throwing things at the wall and see what sticks is to produce things. Um, and I think that's uh, really, I think that's really important too, just in the sense that like, um, you know, we live in a culture and I'm, I'm completely a victim of this too. Uh, where like we're so concerned about the like I put this thing out I hope it goes viral I put this thing out why are people not looking at it? I put this thing out like my mom didn't even read it you know like it's just <laughs> one of those things where you're just like how on earth am I gonna do this but like I 
I have I've had a hard time, but I'm really trying to train myself that, um, you know, when we make stuff and we do it for free and I have like big air quotes mm. around that, um, that what we're doing is we're investing in our future. Like it's the only way that people are going to know that, you know, you still are writing some interesting journalism is if there's interesting journalism for people to write. The only way people are going to know that I'm interviewing people is if there's a podcast for them to listen to. Mm -hmm. And I might release an episode or you might release something on Substack in November and then somebody, you know, the following April comes to you and says, you know, hey, this really, this this planted the seed in my head six months ago. Can we talk about it? And it, it turns into something else. And I think that like, you know, it's it's the double-edged sword of having constant outlets to put your work out into because you can constantly put things out there and then never put uh, a financial component to your time and yeah. never find like sustainability that way. Um, you know, you could release every book that you write as a, uh, you know, a free book on Kindle if you wanted, um, and there would be readership, but it mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't necessarily create that foundation that you need in order to sort of move forward. Um, but I want to switch gears uh, a little mm -hmm. bit and just be mindful of time that, you know, so we talked about Eve of 100 Midnights, which was your first book mm -hmm. in 2016, uh, following Mel and Annalie Jacoby. You followed it up in 2022 with The Golden Fortress, uh, which uh, is sort of, you know, about uh, the California police state uh, blocking people from coming in who are affected by the Depression and the Dust Bowl uh, in the 1930s. Um, and now you've got another project. Uh, you you, uh, you put together a book called A Danger, uh, a Danger Shared, um, mm -hmm. which is a collection of the photography of Mel Jacoby, uh, one mm -hmm. of the, the main, I don't want to say characters, one of the main people that you followed in Eve of 100 Midnights. Um, and I was wondering, you know, like, that's, it's, well, I, I don't want to assume anything because I haven't seen this amazing book, but can you tell us a little bit about uh, this book? Yeah, so as I worked on... Uh, it was funny, you know, I, I went into Eve of 100 Midnights and telling Mel's story, mostly understanding him as a writer, you know, because he had ended his life writing for Time Magazine and um, uh, Life, and I learned in reading his story that he was just as much, or he was becoming a photographer as well. He went to China first as an exchange student, um, and then sort of fell in love with the place and also fell in love with the importance of covering, you know, of international relations and things. Um, uh, and so went back there as a freelance journalist a couple times and then ended up in what is now um, Vietnam and Cambodia um, and Laos, but was then known as French Indochina, and then there for a long time, was in Hong Kong, was in the Philippines, very briefly was in Japan um, after his first year in, in China. Um, and he had traveling all over that region and brought a camera with him all the time and took amazing photos. And it's interesting. So I ended up with all of his negatives, all of his prints, some of his, even his uh, motion picture work, um, you know, reels of his of home movies he took in, in some of these places, including China's wartime capital of Chongqing, um, and uh, while it was at war. And it's amazing stuff. And it's two things that are interesting. One is you see the evolution of this like student visiting Asia and then a journalist, and he ends up making friends with other journalists. You see the sort of photography improve over time. Um, but two, you're also seeing the situation, mostly in China, but also in, in, in um, uh, the former French Indochina, and then in the Philippines, sort of change from 
you know, place that's not at full-scale war to a place that's at war. You know, there had been skirmishes between Japan and China for years by the time they, you know, declared war in July of 1937. But he was there when that happened. And, and then, you know, so you're seeing daily life, um, you know, people going to get their hair cut or people, you know, selling food on the side of the road or people running from, you know, running to bomb shelters. Um, and so all this photography has been there. You know, I, a very small selection ends up in um, Eve of 100 Midnights, and I digitize them and put some on my website. Um, but I was learning about analog photography at the time I started working, mainly inspired by him. I got the same camera that the model of camera that he had used and, and got really interested in, the, you know, what developing film is. But I also got interested in scanning this stuff and archiving it and preserving it. So I spent the summer of 2020, while I was writing Golden Fortress, scanning every one of Mill's negatives. I'd already scanned most of his documents, most of his you know, telegrams and things like that, but scanning like you know his other interesting material and putting it together in a way that you know the the first book is is more about Mel and his story and how he became a journalist and why he became a journalist and what he was doing. There was still this sort of untold story about what it was he was seeing, and these pictures helped tell that story. And in particular, even today, we don't know as much in the West about the war in Asia as we do about the war in Europe. Even the war in the Pacific is covered less than the war in Europe. Um, the war you know, in the Pacific theater, in terms of where the U.S. was fighting, you know, there just are s there's so many collections of photography of these conflicts, but. Seeing this conflict and the place impacted by this conflict, that I think the number of people who died in the war between Japan and China is something like 14 million between 1937 and 1945. That's a huge figure, huge figure. Places that are eternally changed by this conflict, just as the you know events that happened in Europe changed Europe, and we don't talk about that. And that was the case for Mel back then too, you know. He was taking these pictures because this is a place that increasingly mattered to Americans, to particularly he was from California, to Californians. You know, trade was increasing across the Pacific, things like that. But but was neglected, whether it was for racial reasons or cultural reasons or economic reasons or just ignorance. And so this book is partially a way to uh, sort of display the work that he did and tell his story in a different way, but it's more a way to bring these pictures back to life to people who may not have seen them. To look at, you know, Asia in the 1930s and early 1940s from a Westerner's perspective. I am a Westerner with the perspective of a, you know, filtering the perspective of a Westerner who his, you know, perspective was further filtered by his understanding of the region. I am not neglecting any of that, but there just isn't much of this material that survived of cities and towns and buildings and people and, you know, events that some people know about, but a lot of people don't. And so the book is a way to present that, but it's also, like, gorgeous photography, it's interesting, it's compelling. A lot of the subjects and discussions about the conflict and whether we should get involved or not, whether we should, what side we should support or not, um, why or why not, 
how journalists are discussing it or not, what influences are there, all matter today. You know, I finalized the book, um, you know, late in 2020. It ended up being delayed much longer because of a variety of personal and, you know, world events, mainly the pandemic, but other things too. Um, but it's still relevant. It's I think it felt particularly relevant after the war in um, Ukraine started. And um, it's sort of relevant again with the conflict in Israel and Palestine. And, um, you know, it's very, you know, this discussion of how and why journalists are covering conflict is still so present. Um, uh, Mel was somebody who dealt with the sort of, one of his images, there's this really compelling image, and I talked about this in Eve of 100 Minutes, was treated as fake news by some people. You know, it was a really horrible catastrophe that had happened after one bombing raid, and, you know, people didn't want to believe that this horrible thing was happening, and so I think it's still relevant. So, yeah, this book is sort of the, sort of, uh, I guess, flip side of the writing I did in 2016. It's a way to show sort of what had happened. And it goes through sort of the timeline he was there. So it's sort of a, there's sort of a chronological element to the to the collection. It's like coffee table book type of thing. You know, there's photos with contextualizing text. Um, there's a couple documents of the time that were interesting, you know, like cool, you know, stationary or maps or things like that, again, to provide some scene settings and sense of the feeling of what it would have been like to be there because these artifacts have made their way to me. Um, so well, that sounds, that's what's coming out. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. So just to reiterate, it's called A Danger Shared, A Journalist's Glimpse of a Continent at War. And... Uh, Available wherever books are sold is the, uh, you know, the glorious tagline. Yeah. Um, Bill, I always want to, uh, I, I really appreciate you being here. Um, I got two yeah. final questions for you. And the first one is uh, the one that uh, I ask everybody, which is, uh, you know, what's something that we haven't covered or something that's on your mind that you may want to sort of throw out there? Well, of course, we haven't really talked about pinball. Uh, um, I love pinball. I still want to write a book about pinball and the world and the subculture. I mean, as you know, it's really, a, I mean, any subculture is interesting, but it's a cool thing and it's fun. Um, and there's a lot to be written about it. Um, I wrote an article, I was lucky to write an article right before the pandemic about how early aspects of the pandemic were affecting this subculture. Um, but it's funny that pinball's always kind of been a presence throughout my life too, because it just has. And writing about it, I, I tried writing a book, I proposed a book, but no publishers picked it up. Um, actually, around the time we met was what was happening then. And it can have a lot of descriptive, because you got to tell the story of this game that's very physical in a very descriptive way that people who don't play it would understand. And so that's, that was an interesting writing challenge. So I'd love to find a place for it. So I guess listeners should know that uh, uh, there are stories to be told that I'm interested in writing. Um, and I guess the other thing is if people are, I guess I would just say that if anyone's listening to this and wants to think about um, doing like extensively researched scene setting writing, like it's like easier than it sounds. You just, just look, go deeper than a Google. So learn how to use Google in more complex ways. That's the other trick is like, learn how to filter your searches, do their advanced searches and you'll find a lot of stuff you didn't expect to find. 
Yeah. I think in like most, you know, whenever it comes to like attaining a new skill, like I'm probably not going to start doing neurosurgery on people because mm -hmm. I'm interested in that. Like that's probably not a skill I'm going to pick up from watching YouTube videos. But like, you know, when there's when there's skills or, or methods of storytelling or methods of creation that you you find appealing, the only thing stopping you is giving it a go. You know, mm -hmm. like you can always find like the lowest common denominator to, to do that. And if you, you know, if you want to uh try to do some awesome bill lasher style uh investigative <laughs> you know environment setting reporting what's stopping you mm -hmm. um yeah so uh real quick is uh i i uh, i own a pinball arcade i love pinball and uh bill wrote a great article for fortune magazine uh or fortune.com my apologies called no quarter coronavirus is killing pinball halls and the other communal spaces we call home uh which is a, a great article uh just looking at um not only like it, it was it released uh march 21st 2020 so shutdowns had, had just occurred and it's a really nice like on the ground look at the way in which um, people are are instantly impacted by uh, their their gathering spaces, their their hobbies, their uh, their their groups no longer being able to get together. Uh, and it was I found myself rereading that last night and just completely flashing back to uh, you know myself as a teacher at that moment and being like, oh wow, like I I had completely compartmentalized and ditched an entire part of my brain, um, and that was that was quite a journey back. So thanks for that, Bill. Um, and then the other thing I want to I want to just put out there is uh you know for people who are interested in your work bill what are the best mm -hmm. ways to find you what uh what websites what social media? Well, I think the easiest way to find me is lasher at large .com. That's my my own website. Links to most things there. Um, that lasher spelled L A S C H E R. Um, I'm also on the former Twitter whatever the heck it's called these days. I don't love being there, but I am Bill Lasher there. Um, I am on Instagram as Lasher at Large, again, L-A-S-C-H-E-R-A-T-L-A-R-G-E.com. And then there's the newsletter that Ryan mentioned, um, scenicroute.substack.com. Awesome. And they're all really cool. Uh, and I think they do a nice job of, um, I don't know, each has their own flavor. Mm -hmm. As I was looking mm -hmm. at the way in which you use them, uh, a lot of people, myself included, can uh, just kind of like homogenize and you've done a good job of making it so they all have their own little spaces <laughs> well, uh, which is great uh but bill it was an absolute pleasure to chat thanks so much for being on the show thank you so much for having me this is great i really hope you enjoyed that conversation with bill my new favorite information hoarder i'm not sure i've ever heard of anybody who uh applies that title to themselves but now i'm never going to be able to forget it Every time I read all of his work, I'm just going to consistently deconstruct and think about all the different things that are not uh, not present and what other stories might be just floating around in his brain. Who knows? At this exact moment, perhaps he's looking at a piece of microfilm and finding another narrative that uh, he's going to choose whether or not to share with us. But truthfully, a wealth of knowledge and just such an insightful conversation about the creative process and uh, what goes into and what comes out of the work that we see published. If you are interested in learning more about Bill, please consider checking out Lasher at Large, his website, and uh, look for his new book, A Danger Shared, which comes out on March 26th, and you can find at all of your favorite booksellers. 
looking ahead on uh, March 13th, we're going to have Julie Sellers on the show. Julie is the owner of a company called Elevated Outcomes, which uh, operates out of East Nashville. Uh, that company is one that works with different creative firms to figure out how to help them expand and grow their businesses. She's basically a business coach for creatives and uh, is just phenomenal at what she does. So we're going to come to that conversation and kind of talk about uh, her career trajectory, uh, seeing a lot of parallels between the corporate world and uh, the needs in the creative space. And uh, it'll just be a great time to kind of talk about business and the business of art, which uh, some people consider a dirty word, a dirty term. Uh, but on this show, it's just a part of living. So we're going to learn from Julie. It's going to be fantastic. So if you're interested in that, please tune in on March 13th for Julie Sellers. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a review of the podcast, uh, like share it around, spread it to people that you think would uh, find it of interest. Or if you're new to the show, check out the back catalog. There are 15 other episodes with 15 other interesting humans ready for you. So without further ado, please make space for conversation because you just might learn something. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> 